Welcome to the Envisioning BYU podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU addresses that highlight the university's institutional vision. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. C. Terry Warner was a BYU professor of philosophy when he delivered this devotional address titled An Education of the Whole Soul on November eleventh, two 2008. Across the eastern face of the new Joseph S. Smith Building, which was dedicated three years ago, runs a 200-foot curved glass curtain. This curtain encloses a grand gallery on the second and third floors. And in this gallery, a permanent multimedia exhibition opened its doors this fall. The exhibit is entitled The Education of the Soul, Our Distinctive, excuse me, Our Zion Tradition of Learning and Faith. For dozens of us who worked on the exhibit, mainly BYU students and recent graduates, it has been like a secret passageway to a remarkable treasure. I think of it as an inheritance that we did not know was ours. We discovered this treasure in the stories of the people who founded this school. Under the guidance of heaven, they created here a kind of education that is different from anything the world has to offer. To tell you more about this inheritance, I will share a few of their stories with you. At some point after the saints had begun settling in the Mountain West, Brigham Young <clears throat> foresaw the need for schools that would cover the primary grades up through what we now call high school to teach both the academic subjects and the doctrines of our religion. In the spring of 1876, he called Carl G. Mazur to preside at the first of these schools, the Brigham Young Academy in Provo, which at that time was already in its first term under the under interim president Warren Duesenberry. During his interview with, with Brother Mazur, President Young gave him the now famous charge to teach, quote, not even the alphabet or the multiplication table without the Spirit of God, unquote. Mazur could scarcely have been better prepared for this job. He had obtained a world-class education in his native Saxony, then after his conversion served three missions and taught very successfully for about a decade and a half in the Salt Lake schools, where he earned a reputation for excellence. Mazur took over the academy at the beginning of its second term in late April. Before he left Salt Lake for Provo, the, the Territorial School Association gave him a magnificent desk in recognition of his service, a desk that will figure prominently in our story. At the end of the first week of school, <clears throat> Mazur received word on a Friday afternoon that in three days President Young would be in Provo. The prophet wanted to see Mazur's plans for a program that would fulfill the charge to teach every subject by the Spirit of God. So, under pressure from the prophet's pending arrival, Mazur sat at that desk through that Friday night, trying to develop an educational plan that would incorporate President Young's momentous conception of the role of the Spirit in true education. Nothing came to him. All through Saturday he worked and into the night. 
and then again on Sunday until nightfall. Finally, he dropped, disheartened, to his knees. Oh, Father, he pleaded, show me the way. Help me make the plans for this great work. I cannot do it of myself. Immediately, the confusion of the preceding days was lifted, and within an hour or two, Mazur had written out the plan for the new school. It had come to him as an answer to prayer. Mazur's plan ingeniously worked out many ways in which the students would grow morally and spiritually in the very same educational process that developed them intellectually. One of the factors that would make this process work was Mazur's determination to have the teachers do nothing that the students were able to do. Students participated in the academic planning meetings, conducted discussion sessions following the theology classes, assisted administratively, and looked out for one another in a program very much like our home and visiting teaching today. In this school, each would serve the others, and all would progress together. The educational program became the model for a great system of Church schools, many of which were called academies. Over the span of more than 40 years, this system produced tens of thousands of Latter-day Saint leaders and faithful members. By and large, those who developed the seminary and institute programs in the early days all over the world came from these schools. So you see how great is the worldwide educational forest that grew from two apparently tiny seeds. First, a prophet's instruction for the operation of a school to give place to the Spirit of God in everything. And second, a revelation in answer to the prayer of a very good and able servant which he wrote down while sitting at the desk he had been given for faithful servants service to the children of Zion. Whatever the details of the plan Mazur recorded that day, they included the Spirit of God. As James E. Talmadge wrote while still a student, quote, All our discipline, all our studies are conducted according to the Spirit of God. Unquote. Student recollections of the period strongly suggest that this spirit was most noticeably manifest in the love and unity that prevailed in the school, and that this love emanated especially from Brother Mazur. Many stories describe how he lifted and nurtured people. Quote, he knew how to touch a boy's heart like no one else I have ever known, said Bryant S. Hinckley. I have seen men come from the farm and ranch, stay there six months, and go home with an entirely new look in their eye. Mazur had not always possessed this gift of love, at least not in such abundance. Apparently, it came to him when President Young called him to preside at the Academy. George S. Reynolds, the First Presidency's secretary, was present, and he said, that he would never forget the spirit that filled the office that day. Prior to his calling, Mazur had a wide reputation in the Salt Lake schools for severity. Among the students, he was a mean teacher. For example, he once boxed young Reed Smoot on the ear for coming to school unprepared. But it was the same Reed Smoot who later, and gratefully, attended Brigham Young Academy as one of Mazur's very first students 
and who as an older man said that Mazur's whole nature changed at the time of his calling. Without this transformation, it is doubtful that Mazur could have instilled a nurturing spirit in his students, which he surely did. I'll tell you about a few of them. Joseph B. Keeler, one of Mazur's uh, students in the first class, managed the students' finances and physical facilities while teaching eight classes per term. He was widely known for his splendid example, his gift for listening, and for finding ways to help students in need. One day he overheard President George H. Brimhall expel a very uncooperative repeat offender. As the student was leaving, Keeler drew him into his office in order, he said, to take care of the details. He asked about the young man's plans, which included going into business. Then, explaining that withdrawing from school would take a few days, Keeler offered the young man work in the office, quote, to finish out the week. The week became a month and more. The young man stayed in school. He graduated with honors and became an upright businessman. Years later, he attributed his, quote, success in life to that great man. As a faculty member, Alice Louise Reynolds obtained most of her advanced education, studying with one, some of the world's finest literature teachers during leaves from her teaching position. She brought back and shared with her students who flocked to her classes whatever she had discovered that enriched her life. One colleague described her as a person of uncommon intellectual standards who had been refined and ennobled by both religion and art. She had an unusual capacity to awaken both the faith and the intellect of her students, I think, because she had blended them so well in her own life. She also was able to make her students believe in themselves, and I think this was because she believed in them so much herself. Brigham T. Higgs taught carpentry and classes, carpentry classes, and supervised the school's maintenance. He was the first to hire students for this purpose. Though he arrived at the academy too late to work under Brother Mazur, he quickly came to exemplify the school's nurturing spirit. He would meet with the student workers daily before dawn and instruct them not only in their duties, but also about the value of work and virtuous living. Don't be a scrub, he would say, meaning someone who does less than his best. Be the man you would be proud to have your son become. He would visit their boarding houses to make sure their living conditions were adequate and bring food to the ones who were struggling. President Brimhall once said that no one had been more valuable to the, to the university than B.T. Higgs, and a number of Higgs students praised him as their greatest inspiration. <clears throat> Partly because of the influence of these and other educational pioneers, more Latter-day Saints who went to major universities for their advanced schooling stayed in the Church and returned to build up Zion. Many reared families and became leaders. Many taught in the Church's quorums, auxiliaries, and schools. And their students, who were even more numerous, did the same. Each succeeding generation was better prepared academically and spiritually than its predecessors. Thus, a branching, expanding genealogy, excuse me, educational genealogy 
runs through our history and the history of other church education, church education schools and programs as well. Very sadly, we have records of relatively few individuals kindling in others the flame of learning. But I am sure that this lighting of others' lamps happened thousands of times in our history and that the stories are all written in the Book of Life. The stories I've just told clearly illustrate two of the characteristics of education in the Kingdom of God that make it different from anything to be found in the world. First, as the title of the exhibit indicates, it is an education of the whole soul. We saw in the story of Brother Mazur how limiting it, how limiting it can be. Even in a person of extraordinary talent, when his development is deficient in some essential respect. Second, if we are living as the gospel requires when we are learning, we are unwilling to leave others behind. An essential part of our growth, if we are working in Zion, comes in helping others grow. Those we help help yet others, our own posterity among them. We are drawn together. We become united as Zion people. Fundamentally, education in the kingdom of God is different because it operates on the Zion principle of love. This Zion tradition of learning did not begin with Brigham Young and Carl G. Mazur. In this dispensation, it goes back to Joseph Smith. His was truly an education of the whole soul, divinely orchestrated. Heavenly teachers were his instructors and models. His scriptural translations gave him great knowledge of God's dealings with Israel and developed his ability to obtain revelation, for he worked with languages he did not know. In the translations, excuse me, in the tribulations that he had to pass through, he grew in virtue, leadership, compassion, and wisdom. God developed not just Joseph's mind, but his whole being. Joseph also exemplified the second characteristic of a Zion education in that his constant labor was to help the saints come to enjoy the very same holy experiences and gain the same knowledge that he had obtained. He did not reserve any privileges for himself alone. The instructions for how the first school in Zion, the school of the prophets, was to operate were given by the Lord. But in every respect, they are expressive of Joseph's heart. <clears throat> for they outlined the way participants were to build each other up and thus advance together. The school met in Kirtland in an 11 by 14 room above Newell Whitney's store and included the most seasoned Church leaders with some women attending. They were instructed to study subjects that would develop all their gifts and talents, from the doctrines of the kingdom to the affairs of the world, so that they, like Joseph, could be prepared to help build up a Zion people. And they were told how to conduct themselves in the school, which brought a dimension to their learning and growth that otherwise would have been absent. For example. Everyone was to come repentant, humble, reverent, invigorated after a good night's sleep, 
clean and wearing fresh clothing, fasting, free of pride, envy, and fault-finding, and bonded together by love. The learning itself was to be collaborative, with each person given, it, given, given a chance to teach the others, and then listen carefully while the others taught, so that, quote, all may be edified of all, and that every man might have an equal privilege, unquote. The pattern of their preparation and their study together, which is rooted in the order of the priesthood, would enable them to grow in many directions at once. <clears throat> you can see that in these instructions, the Lord was building up His beloved servants by asking them to build up one another. Following this divine example, Joseph, Brigham Young, and their successors sought diligently to bring the kind of education that began in the School of the Prophets to as many Latter-day Saints as possible. I don't have time to speak of the details, but I'll just say here that throughout the next century, as the Church grew, these leaders established priesthood quorums, priesthood auxiliaries, community schools, stake academies, colleges, a university, and eventually the seminaries and institutes. They kept at the work even in desperately impoverished circumstances, when many others thought education should be postponed. For they understood very clearly an urgency that Elder Jeffrey R. Holland expressed when he presided at this school in 1981. This Church, he said, is always just one generation away from extinction. All we would have to do to destroy this work is to stop teaching the children for one generation." Close quote. It was not primarily for themselves but for the children of the future, for Zion, that these visionary leaders and their faithful associates worked so hard. There is almost nothing we can name that has absorbed as much of the Latter-day Prophet's energy, attention, and care as the education of this people. You may have thought that you are here to take a certain series of classes, obtain a degree, and then leave learning behind. I do not think that is the way the Lord designed. He wants the flourishing of your whole soul for the glories He has in mind for you, including an eternal family with children who will shine as jewels in your crown. And that is why He intends to bless you if you will exert yourself with a soul-stretching education all your life. It is also why he has provided this school, together with all the rest of Church education. I caution you against making the mistake of supposing these resources to be merely human institutions. When in 1885 the Brigham Young Academy's financial challenges were particularly trying, a faculty member who was also Brigham Young's daughter sought President John Tater's help. He told her that her father, who had passed on some years before, had come to him in the silence of the night and told him, quote, that the school being taught by Brother Mazur was accepted in the heavens and was part of the great plan of life and salvation, and that Christ himself was directing it. 
and had a care over this school. Brigham Young founded this academy, the academy, because he was alarmed that educational institutions were rapidly forgetting their religious heritage and rearing children to embrace an increasingly secular and increasingly atheistic culture. Only a different kind of school could avoid this fate, a school in which all teaching and learning would be done by the Spirit of God. Mazur once put it this way, the new academy simply had to have, quote, the spirit of the latter-day work running through it like a golden thread, end quote. Mazur's successors shared that conviction. Our fourth president, Franklin S. Harris, said at his inauguration in 1921, quote, there has grown out of this institution a certain fire that must be kept burning. The first task of the future is to, prever- is to preserve this spirit that comes to us from the past. This is our task also. We should not expect this task to be easier than what the founders had to do. As in Brigham Young's time, we live surrounded by a secular culture that seems more and more threatening. I suppose that most of us unwittingly bring elements of this culture into our community of learning. We import tinges of its contempt for simple religious faith its frivolous and often mental, often angry mental life, its demand for rights without responsibility, its tolerance for wasted time, its sickening vulgarity, its pride in gaining advantage over other people, and much more. When we help or allow such attitudes to encroach upon this community, we subtly but surely lend ourselves to the devil's project of making this school over in the image of the world, something which President Spencer W. Kimball said, quote, must not happen. We can overcome such dangers, not by becoming a cultural police force, but by actively building up a far better way of life. <clears throat> when men and women are, quote, anxiously engaged in a good cause and doing many things of their own free will to bring to pass much righteousness, unquote. They make it very hard for the attitudes and habits of a carnal and violent world to get a foothold here. By building others up and thus building Zion, we overcome evil with good. I think of Florence Jefferson Madsen, who had gained great prominence as a contralto soloist in Boston and New York. When she came to BYU in 1920, She, with her husband Franklin, established a great musical tradition by hiring a fine faculty and mounting splendid productions. Beyond that, she organized and directed over 2,000 groups of singing mothers throughout the Church. We simply cannot count the students who carried their enhanced musical talents and their enthusiasm wherever they went. It was said that no LDS woman did more to bring beauty and harmony into the world. I think of Sidney B. Sperry, who retired the year I came here on the faculty. Beginning in the late 1920s, he helped to pioneer the blending of scholarship with the teaching of Scripture. It was a time when the faith of young Latter-day Saints was being shaken by scholars' naturalistic explanations of spiritual events in the Bible. Sperry used these same scholars' findings 
though not their irreligious speculations, to deepen religious understanding. By this means, over the course of nearly 40 years, he brought gospel scholarship into the lives of Church education teachers and students and a very wide audience of Church members. Among those who learned from him were many who later shaped religious instruction in the Church system. I ask myself, what if people such as these had not built up this school and the rest of the Church educational system? What would we be learning here? What would be our attitudes, our aspirations, our relationships? Would they be different at all from the secular culture around us? Would we know anything about God and His plan of happiness? What would we be like if the teachers of our teachers, going far back, had not been men and women such as Carl Mazur, Alice Louise Reynolds, and Sidney Sperry? Remember, the way to destroy this work and to cheat the children of the future of everything we hold dear is to stop teaching them the gospel, our precious way of life, for just one generation. Today I have spoken of the importance to us of our educational ancestors. So many of, this, of us have given this topic so little thought that I presumed it would be helpful to tell you that for, for us who have worked on the exhibit and studied their lives, these people have become an unexpected treasure. We soon realized, as we went about our work, that we were not just recording the stories of bygone men and women. We were coming to know these people, as if in person. Even across the years, we could feel their influence spiritually. Their example seemed to us to gently pull us aside and show us how we could be doing better. They became part of our work. And in the process, we, like they, sought the Lord's Spirit so that our efforts, like theirs, might enlighten, edify, and encourage others. Thus, we joined our hands and hearts with theirs, and, they, and we became part of their work. This has seemed to me a very real inheritance in Zion. We were given a place among eternal friends who had done eternal work for souls they had yet to meet. I have learned from these noble people that laboring in Zion for Zion, in whatever capacity, gives us the privilege of using all our talents, gifts, and learning to build up a Zion way of living together, a holy culture, an alternative to a perishing world. In this Zion culture, the major formative influences upon our posterity will come from good and faithful people. I have been associated with closely with three major universities, and I can tell you that for me, the life of learning does not get any sweeter than this.
and the inheritance I've described is also yours to claim, if you desire. On two high and facing walls, one on the north and the other on the south of the exhibit gallery, are two remarkable 18-foot-high murals painted by one of our students. The south one depicts the Kirtland Temple, barely seen if you're looking at it right now, but in the large mural, obvious. <clears throat> it was the first temple of this dispensation, and like all the temples, was to be a house of learning. It is labeled the Temple a Holy School. The mural on the north depicts the Brigham Young University in President George H. Brimhall's time, with the Academy building in the foreground and the newly constructed Mazer building further in the background on Temple Hill. Its title is The School, a Temple of Learning. I have learned from the lives of our founders that this school does indeed deserve the name A Temple of Learning. I bear witness in the name of Jesus Christ that the work of this university and the whole Church education system is His work, for He commanded, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. In His name, amen. You've been listening to the Envisioning BYU podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches and classic speeches, as well as BYU Speeches compilations on marriage and love, overcoming adversity, Joseph Smith, Come Follow Me, by study and by faith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.